1: Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 112. What can I name?
0: What do I find worthy of naming? What language do I use to name things around me? What language do I use to name things that aren't around me? Reclaiming language within that. What names do I choose not to use?
1: Siobhan Williams-Shen is a poet, artist, educator, and activist. They were a first runner-up for the Los Angeles Review Flash Fiction Contest and a Best of the Net award finalist. They were also a Pushcart Prize nominee, a winner of the Loft Literary Center's Mentor Series, and a fellow with the Givens Foundation for African American Literature. A Tin House and Vona Workshop alum, their poetry and prose has appeared in Diode, Anomaly, Cosmonauts Avenue, and others. And when they're not teaching with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, they can be found in their house obsessing over their plants. (laughs) <laughs> Y'all, Shavon reached out to me um, probably two months ago with a little poem they had written, inspired by queerology, and and I read the poetry, immediately started Googling, and and was like, we need to get Shavon on the show, and so today is that day. This is a really lovely conversation about using art as a practice of resilience as a practice of resistance. Siobhan has a lot of experience in using poetry and teaching poetry and writing as an act of healing, and so I am thrilled to have a conversation about that with them. As far as announcements, I just got word from the folks over at QCF conference that they have set up a code for Queerology listeners to get $10 off the virtual all-access pass which is currently $65, so that means you can get it for $55 using the code QUEEROLOGY2021. That's QUEEROLOGY2021. All of the details for the conference are over at qcfconf.org. You'll also hear an ad for it in the middle of this episode. So, QUEEROLOGY2021, $10 off. And that's it. So let's go ahead and dive in. Siobhan, hi, welcome. Hello. I am so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me here. It's such an honor.
1: Yeah. So so to start, this is the question I ask everyone, how do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? I love this question so much.
0: I identify as pansexual, genderqueer Christian. I identify as a Minneapolitan from Minneapolis. I identify as 1.5 generation Minnesotan. My dad's from Mississippi and my mom was born here, but all her siblings and her parents were raised in Birmingham, Alabama. So, having one foot in the north and one foot in the deep south. And I identify as a storyteller. I think that's my most prominent identity. I make a living teaching and writing poetry and performing it, but ultimately, I feel like it's all storytelling. My dad, growing up in the deep south and hearing the stories that he told me about his childhood and stories about my grandparents and my great-great-grandparents, a lot of them get worked into my poem. And it just—him telling me those stories in the way that he takes these familiar stories from history but remixes them to fit his own terms, to fit his needs— is something that I've taken with me as a, as a Christian. Just what is this typical story and how can I remix it to fit my needs in ways that are appropriate for my identities? What ways can I see this ancient text and see the stories in it? And what ways can I insert myself into this ancient text rather than just seeing it as just a really old book?
1: I love that and, and I would love to hear maybe some of your journey with that like what what, what has that looked like and, and and have you always kind of been in this this space of of really kind of looking kind of playing with the text um or or has that shifted throughout your life
0: Yeah, when I was really little, my parents would uh, read a story to me and my sister every night. So, well, read in quotations, my mom would actually get the books and read it. Versus my dad would read a sentence for the book and then get bored of it and then start making up his own ending and his own characters. (laughs) And when I was little, I would get so mad, like, dad, that's not how Snow White goes. That's not how mom reads it. And (laughs) just as an adult, I can appreciate it. Like, hey, what if Snow White actually had, like, was best friends with Rapunzel and all this stuff. I feel like The stories that I was given, I was able to make them or I was taught to make them more malleable from a very, very young age. And as I started to explore art as more serious career rather than just a hobby, I was able to reach back into those childhood skills of or the skills that I was able to foster of malleability and adaptability within storytelling. So to circumnavigate, I think that's a word <laughs> to your original question, I would say that it's been with me for a really long time.
1: I love that. Like, like I, I'm imagining both... Like, I imagine both the, the, maybe the delight of having your dad kind of play with those stories, but also that, I mean, what you said, (laughs) that sense of like, that's not what's on the page. Like, both of those things together is such a a beautiful image. And it sounds like you're kind of taking that as inspiration, as a practice even, and, and bringing that into your life now. For sure. So you're a writer, you, you teach writing, you, you do poetry. How did you get into that work?
0: Funny story. <laughs> I remember when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I was like seven, eight, nine, ten, 10. And I would say a ballerina, writer, astronaut, in that order, ballerina, writer, astronaut. <laughs> and I am not the best dancer. So that definitely <laughs> didn't happen. Um, but The writing part, I was in my school newspaper, my middle school newspaper, an editor for that way back in like fifth and sixth grade. And then I was the editor of my high school newspaper from like a really ever since I got there and just writing had been a very clear career path for me. And suddenly when I became a senior, I was convinced that writing should be a hobby, that it should be something kept in the corners, kept aside Cast aside, and the real career should be science. So, all of my college application essays were on cognitive science and neuroscience and philosophy. And I had said that, you know, we can name Jupiter's moons, but we don't have a chemical equation for love. And we can name the depth of the ocean, but how can we measure intelligence and all these really lofty ideals? And I remember when I declared my major, the spring term of sophomore year as a circum, or I was about to use a circumnavigate again.
1: It's a great um, cog- word.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like a word that gets stuck in your brain, kind of circumnavigates. Right, right. your brain. <laughs> Cogsci, another word that starts with C. <laughs> When I declared cognitive science and psychology, I remember my mom and my sister being like, wait, what are you doing? You're not doing English? Why? (laughs) Like, what are you doing? You love writing. And then I'm like, I love it, but not enough to give me a steady career path. And fast forward, fast forward after I graduated undergrad and I was working at a tech center, um, doing some youth engagement work, um, combining stem stuff and art, but it was still like very visual arts based or um, graphics based, but nothing really writing related, nothing really poetry related. And I mean, it made money, but I was very, very unhappy and bored. and I had started talking to some people. And I remember I was on Facebook just scrolling through one night and one of my friends had poetry show, but it was one of those things where you mass invite people. So it was like probably 300 invites to the same poetry show. And I felt like, oh, it's a Saturday night. I don't really have anything to do. So I went and I saw her perform through this fellowship, Gibbons Foundation for African American Literature. And I really wanted that. Like I want it to be in that community. I want it to be on that stage in reading and writing. And the application for the fellowship had passed when I had went to the, per- the performance, but I went to the director like, can I please apply? And she let me apply. And then from there, I heard of this other fellowship at the Loft Literary Center, and I applied for that, and I got into that. And from there, a bunch of my friends through that program had went to Hamlin for their MFA, and then I applied to that and got in, and then the rest is history,
1: from my MFA program to all the things I'm doing now. I love that. Even as you talked about like these questions that you had in mind as you were going into your degree, like the you, you can name them, we can name the moons of Jupiter, but we don't have an equation for life. Like, even that sounds poetic. Like, <laughs> those are like such poetic questions. <laughs> I can't achieve it. <laughs> like, I, I love it. Um, and, and it's interesting to me because in your undergrad, like you, you did a lot of work around, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like a lot of work around poetry as a, a way to heal trauma. Am I understanding that right? Did I did I read oh, for that sure. well? Yeah. I, I would yeah. love to hear about that. Cause cause you still are doing work with poetry. Like <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I saw that kind of as a loophole. Like, okay, now I'm doing a bunch of brain stuff, but I can kind of sneak in some poetry, kind of sneak in some art. So my singer thesis was yeah, poetry therapy. Helping um, heal survivors of sexual assault and intimate partner violence and I had worked on that thesis for a year, gathering source, sources and doing an you know, entire peer lit review um, And this whole time I as I was doing the research um, trying to get to the trying to find the conclusion of whether poetry therapy does happen or does help people, in the back of my head I'm like, duh of course, it helps people. Just duh. Why do I need research? Why do I need to read these journals to validate what I already know? So, yeah, I already knew that poetry was a healing force, but I didn't think that it could apply to my life as much. Like, you can use it in this business setting, this scientific setting, but could I write as a living without using psychology or cognitive science as the overarching career? Then, no, that would
1: be a big no no. So you move from that kind of place of that would be a big no no to, you know, eventually getting your MFA and, and now I mean you are doing it as a living. And this this question, like you teach about like using poetry as a form of protest, like like queer poems of protest. You're talking about poetry being being places of healing. Like I, I'm thinking, even in just like the the like here and now of this moment. Like like we're recording this the day before the election, <laughs> and while the now like once this airs, everyone will know what happened. Um, but like we're in a place though of like the election isn't going to solve everything. So these ideas of protest, these ideas of healing, tell me about what you know. <laughs> like, that's a big question. <laughs> but on these themes.
0: I feel like, I mean I'm not the only one to say these things, but when it comes to these big protests of lifting marginalized voices, there are always those within the corners that are left, such as queer people within the movement for Black Lives? What about queer Black lives? What about my life? How does that fit into the overall movement without me having to constantly advocate for myself when it should be an overarching theme on very, very public platforms? So I taught the class Queer Protest Poetry a couple of years ago, thinking about, yeah, just protest, the themes of protest, the themes of art in protest. But how there are always voices who will be shouting, but have to fight extra hard to be heard amongst all the other things that are happening.
1: Could you read for us some of your poetry?
0: Oh, read some of my poetry?
1: I would love to hear it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. This is a poem that I wrote about my grandma, my dad's mom. It's called To Be Soft. My grandmother's hands were like figs dried in a Mississippi summer, her scars read like love notes. Calluses born in cotton fields, basin jar lid imprints on her palms, freckled pricks from needles left in purses, burns near her right wrist. She was slow with chicken grease. Sometimes she'd lather dishes and scrub the same cup until a shine rivaled finery seen in the cat- Sears catalog she loved to keep. She dreamt of mansions up north filled with linen only meant for others to envy. Her help would press stubborn shirts and fetch her coat if the wind even whispered a frost. They'd rub lavender on her hands until she was soft as water earth. They'd clean windows for her to watch lesser women pass by, their hands rough like cracked dirt. Thoughts fixed on to-do list, their own overseers.
1: Mm. There's such like beauty and yearning in those words.
0: For sure. When I wrote that, I had wrote the last stanza. The well, I wrote the first lines and the very last lines of the poem, the first, and then everything else, the middle part, came way later. So my grandmother's hands were like big stride in Mississippi summer, and then she'd clean windows for her to watch lesser women pass by. Lesser women pass by, their hands rough like cracked dirt, their own overseers. I thought a lot about my. I was trying to zero in on a very specific body part and what stories a body part can tell. Going along with that storyteller theme, just how so many stories live in our bodies, but some stories live in very specific parts. And hands, there's so much you can talk about hands and seeing people's professions, what they like to do. My mom, she would take me, when I was way younger at least, once a month to get my fingernails painted. And that's what I think about her hand. And I remember she would let me pick out the colors for her sometimes. I would pick out the colors based on their names, the name of the paint. So yeah, like egg yolk yellow or midnight blue. And those colors help inform the way that I wanted to see the world. Why do I have to say yellow? Why do I have to say blue? Like, midnight blue. (laughs) But going back, uh, that was a gigantic tangent. But still poetry. Still poetry related. Just, (laughs) like, grandma's hands. And, um, yeah, just all the things you can tell about somebody with hands, with their hands, what they like to do, their profession, um, who they are in ways that words can't. So I was trying to capture this feeling, like, the physicality of a body part in words and i think i did a good enough job but i kind of i want to have a picture of my grandmother's hands and just be like okay this is the poem
1: you mentioned a bit ago i don't i don't think you quite use this exact language but but kind of how poetry can be a place of of, of where you're like carving out space for yourself would you use that language or would you use different language for it
0: yeah, for sure. When you had said that, the first thing that came to mind is like whittling. How you have this block of wood, and you're just like carving away at it. How you have all this other stuff going on, all this these big issues, other parts of identity. And with poetry, you just like get that knife and you just kind of chip away at things until like you get you get the image or get the feeling that you're trying to capture. And sometimes you have a bunch of splitters on that wood and sometimes you don't quite capture it. And sometimes you end up like making a wrong cut or sliver and how that can distort the image. But ultimately I do feel like it's a different way of carving space for yourself. I don't know if that quite answered your question. I just really focused in on the image on what you said, carving. And then I automatically started thinking of literal carving.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really like that image of, of like, I mean, because in some ways it, it is literal carving. Like, like you said, like, I mean, you mentioned like in movements like for, for racial justice, you're, you're like, well, what about Black queer people? Like, like there's this sense of where you're like actually physically carving and saying like, no, I I am here too. And what I mean, like when when we think about whittling or or carving, like that, there's a lot of work involved in that. Like, like it's not an easy task. (laughs) So I'm rolling with this metaphor now too. (laughs) But I mean, like, does does that feel true?
0: Yeah, you were able to connect the dots in ways that I didn't see. (laughs) So I'll roll with what you said.
1: (laughs) Okay. Cool. Great. Y'all, I'm so excited to be going to Q Christian Fellowship's first-ever virtual conference happening January 7th through 10th in 2021. Listen to this keynote lineup. Father Richard Rohr, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, who's been on choreology many times, Dr. Emily Towns, and Rev. M. Po Tutu Van Fert, that's Desmond Tutu's daughter, you'll have the opportunity to hear from and connect with LGBTQ plus Christians and allies from all over the world. QCF Conference is an annual gathering where hundreds of LGBTQ plus Christians and allies gather for worship, fellowship, workshops, affinity gatherings, and to experience the fullness of God's love and affirmation through each other. I'll be recording a live episode of Queerology. Kevin Garcia and I are hosting an after-hours game night that's going to be wild. (laughs) And we're also doing a workshop together about overcoming shame and bad theology. It's more than just a conference. QCF is catalyzing a movement. Virtual all-access registration is just $65, making this the most successful conference ever. To find out more, visit qcfconf.org and sign up today. That's QCF-C-O-N-F. F. Dot org. can't wait to see you there this idea of carving out spaces for ourselves i mean uh, as queer folks at least to me like there's there's a sense of familiarity of what it's like at least you know my queerness to, to carve um, but but you're bringing in i mean i mean so many other experiences being black being genderqueer and 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 like all these other places where you have to quite literally carve. And and, and you're using your poetry in a way, tell me if this feels true, you're using your poetry in a way, you're writing in a way to take up ground, to claim space. I I would love to hear about that. That, That's such an abstract question. (laughs) (laughs) Does that take you anywhere?
0: I thought of a class that I had taught a couple years back called Reclaiming Language, How Writers for Color Have use these really traditional and by traditional i mean european western traditional poetic forms and how they were able to tell their own messages by reclaiming it and that's just a different way to carve out space reclaiming language and i think about ways that i am reclaiming space <laughs> I thought of, well, I'm teaching a composition writing class right now, and I am carving out space by throwing out all the queer writers of color and just disabled writers and all the marginalized folks I can within this class and trying to somehow tie it into writing and composition but yeah i think of that as a way of carving out space even on facebook how what i post different writers different artists yeah that's another way to carve out space reclaim space
1: it seems like there's a i mean there's there's obviously an intentionality to it but but like a practice to it as as well I would love to hear i mean i mean for folks who are listening to this and and for myself so maybe i shouldn't even put that on folks who are listening for myself i'm curious (laughs) like for people who want to like start using writing as a tool in the ways that you're you're kind of getting to right now like exercises like things that have been helpful for you like what would you recommend
0: naming just the very process of naming what's around you there are times where I have my own creative blockage and then I look at something and try to come up with the weirdest name for it that I can Same with colors, going back to picking out my mom's nail polish based on the colors, the names of the colors, like what's a really, really weird name I can come up for, with for this color. And I think from there, you just have such fertile ground to start a writing practice off of just what can I name? What do I find worthy of naming? What language do I use to name things around me? What language do I use to name things that aren't around me? Reclaiming language within that. What names do I choose not to use?
1: My mind is going to like in the therapy room, I'll often say to folks like our job in this room or one of our jobs in this room is, is to name what is true and, and to not shy away from what is true. And, and sometimes that means facing hard realities, but like that practice of, of actually sitting down and saying, this is actually what's true. It sounds, I mean, we're, we're talking about very different spheres, but they, they sound so similar. <laughs> Practicing naming.
0: Naming is therapeutic. I actually got my first devotional out with our Bible app, which is actually how I found your podcast through (laughs) just random searching on our Bible (laughs) app. (laughs) (laughs) So it's coming full circle. But yeah, I had a devotional that came out last week called Naming God on Our Own Terms and just, yeah, renaming and naming yourself, finding new names for God rather than the ones that you've been given. How... That itself is healing. We can't necessarily change these past experiences, but our future experiences, how do names shape those? And I had said in the devotional, um, yeah, just one of the very first step for building any relationship is getting a name, knowing somebody's name. So for future relationship building and our spiritual practices within our personal lives, within our art, what ways can we name these things to kind of go off of what you were saying that are true, that are true to us, that are true?
1: I'm loving that idea of bringing that to God. And I would love to hear some of a little bit of your spiritual journey. I mean, you're you're talking about learning how to to play with the text of the Bible or, or what it looks like to, to actually name God in different ways. Would love to hear some of that journey.
0: Yeah, I think about... A lot of the people in my family are ministers, are products of divinity school, but of the more conservative kind. And I remember, I said this in devotional, in the devotional one time, how I had brought up to my cousin, my minister cousin, how God might be a woman just even might exploring that option and she started quoting revelations at me just that one part where at the end like anybody who adds are you do you know what I'm talking about like anybody yeah, right, who adds like words, adding to
1: the, right <laughs> yeah. adding or taking away will be like lose all yeah like, basically like, you'll go to hell right like <laughs> basically like yeah
0: um, yeah <laughs> so that in some way shut down my journey because what teenager wants to go to hell, (laughs) especially when I was already in the process of questioning my sexuality with that, my own gender expression, these things being seen as deviant, these things being called deviant, just how can I question God? How can I rename God if I'm not even comfortable renaming myself or just calling something what it is? I can't think of the specific expression, but yeah, just naming what something is. If I can't even say that I'm queer, how can I create this entirely new name? I think, yeah, there's a time where I was more Christian adjacent, I would say, than Christian. Me coming out my freshman year of college, I was sure to come out when I was far enough away from my family where I had like a place to live already and food and support there just in case stuff did go down. Thank God my parents, uh, my mom and my dad were really affirming other family members. That's a different story, but I don't live with them. So, (laughs) but that having that vitriol or just that level of acidity from my extended family members and even some from my immediate family and their way of, Calling me deviant as a way to bring me closer to God. Yeah, just your lifestyle, your lifestyle choices, your partners, they're deviant. But as if naming this thing as bad is somehow going to bring me closer to what is supposedly good. So I didn't completely reject Christianity, but more so if you were to ask me when I was early 20s, if I was a Christian, I'd just be, yeah, but it'd be a very noncommittal yes. But it's taking me finding a lot of internet searches. <laughs> um, just, is it okay to be gay? <laughs> um, my 21 year old um, Chrome history, just <laughs> researching that once a week, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And just finding the sources, finally getting to the sources that are true to me, that speak truth in ways that aren't calling me deviant and making me feel horrible about things I can't change. One, but two, more than just speaking from a place of neutrality, more than just saying you don't make me feel bad, but finding things that make me feel good finding ways to uh, practice my spirituality in places where i can apply, practice my spirituality in ways that uplift me uh ways that make me want to you know you get so happy where you can't contain it
1: oh, i love that i feel like i'm saying i love that a lot um <laughs> like after everything you say I'm like, oh i love that and i I'm do glad. Like, <laughs> i'm glad it's I'm fully sincere <laughs> You said something there earlier about, like, I couldn't even name myself. Like, the struggle to even use language of, of, of queer and to use that as, in some ways, as a name. Like, it brought me right back to to my experiences with... Like how hard it was for me to even say the words like i'm gay and like this theme this idea of, of 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 naming of of speaking what is true and you're sharing this this journey of of learning how to to use your own names in, in the face of other people putting words and names deviant like onto you in in what it's been like to not only reclaim that name, but reclaim your your faith, your, your spiritual practices. Would you consider, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but w- would you consider writing, poetry, the spiritual practice? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's why I thought you were going to say. <laughs>
0: yes. I've recently gotten a lot better at not being so one-track-minded, just thinking, okay, if I write this thing, then it means that I have to send it out into the world. This means that I have to edit it a bunch in order for it to be even remotely considered publishable or something that I'd be okay, yeah, having somebody else share. And i have retracting that and taking a step back, multiple steps back, saying that, okay, why did I start writing in the first place? What, How can I make writing spiritual again? This Ready being such a big part of my life and my spirituality being a big part of my life. Um, how I would say even a couple months ago, I saw them as way more separate than they are right now. And just being able to write for myself. Now, I have a, a folder on my Google Drive, just poems for me, titled poems for me. And those are kind of my prayer poems, the poems that I write and turn into prayers. One of the people who I heard on your podcast like months and months ago, Kenji Kuramitsu. Yeah, Kenji. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah I loved loved love, loved that episode so much that so I was inspired to create my own prayer book but for me, like my own poems that were mine that I could refer back to in certain situations for for spiritual practice.
1: That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Like even, even what it looks like to, to create in in some ways for your own self and then to use these things as, as practices and, and as like, this is, this is actually mine and I'm going to use this as a tool for myself. Mm -hmm. Would you consider that to be protest? I mean, like protest is such a big idea. Yeah. Say more about that.
0: There's so many different ways to protest and with the uprisings with George Floyd, especially with me being in St. Paul right next to Minneapolis, being from Minneapolis, seeing what's going on in the neighborhoods where I grew up and the neighborhoods that I've lived in before. I love seeing all the ways that or the myriad of ways that people found to be involved or different ways of protest, like making sure I'm delivering food to my neighbors, how that can be a form of protest, how allegating my money towards certain organizations, how that's an act of protest, and how sitting quietly and meditating, making sure that I am prepared to have these conversations, at least with myself, is an act of protest. And writing, being an extension of that prayer, at least for me, as an extension of my writing, how and how that's directly connected to meditation and how that's directly connected to my well-being, how those are all acts of protest, not just things that fuel me to be better when I get to physical spaces, Or conversations where I, conversations that engage in protest, but yeah, just how those are acts of protest that I can do privately.
1: I mean, it's, it's making me think of, or, are you familiar with the NAP ministry? Have you heard of?
0: I follow them on Twitter. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> and, and that work of, of what it means to rest and in using rest as a form of protest, which like, I, I, I think I want to say, and, and tell me if you agree with this, like, it, it probably looks different for white folk versus BIPOC people, like, uh, and, and even like, like rest as protest maybe for a white person might look very different <laughs> as as claiming space of, of rest for for a BIPOC person but for all of this though like rest being kind of a revolutionary way to say no to systems
0: for sure for sure yeah you got me thinking about what rest looks like in different groups things that had been in the back of my mind but i haven't fully articulated in many spaces yeah, just what does rest look like as a Black person of slave descent? What does rest look like as someone from Minneapolis, someone from someone living in St. Paul, someone who's so close to the heart of the matter? Uh, yeah, just what does rest look like for me? And I mean that in very personal terms. Just what does rest look like for Siobhan? And I don't quite have an answer for that. It's something that I've been struggling with, and I don't know if I'll ever not struggle with it. I'm trying. (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) I remember my birthday um, a few years back. My mom was like, Siobhan, I am so proud of you and all the things that you did, Um, the place you worked, whatever, whatever. Um, I'm so proud of you. And I told my mom, like, I do these things because I have to. The world won't take me seriously if I don't do this and this and this, if I'm not involved in this and this and this as a Black queer person. There are many avenues for quote unquote traditional success. So just overworking myself to get half as much recognition as some of my white peers was just seen as a necessity. But my mom responded like, Siobhan, no, you don't. Just you don't. And my mom is very aware of systems of oppression and things in that matter. But it made me realize how much pressure I put on myself to be a part of these, or how much pressure I put on myself to supposedly resist these oppressive structures.
1: So I mean, my mind is going back to like using like that 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 prayer book that you created. Like that that feels like that. Flies, in some ways, almost directly in the face of that, of, of, of you saying, like, actually, I'm going to make this for me and just for me. It feels like almost in, in some way, I and mean, tell me if this feels true to you, but like almost the opposite of, of creating for others or, or trying to, like, take on the world <laughs> and, and instead saying, like, no, actually, I'm just going to be here with me.
0: 100% agree. I don't know. Are you an Enneagram snob? I'm like getting to be an Enneagram snob. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I I have dabbled in the Enneagram, yes.
0: <laughs> the church that I go to now is just like Enneagram, Enneagram, Enneagram. And I didn't really <laughs> know what that meant last year. So like, okay, you gotta, if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> but just <laughs> like me being type one, wing two, the reformer, just how I really do feel the need to take on the world and I can't rest if I know that people around me are hurting and it makes me physically anxious, knowing all the problems that are in the world and in my community and on my block and in my own life that are caused by systematic forces of capitalism, racism, all of those combined. Or just even interpersonal ones. (laughs) Yeah, interpersonal ones that are independent of those isms. But there's always gonna be the next big thing. There is never an ending point, there will always be something else to worry about. So, yeah, seeing this her book as a way for me to refocus and take a step back and to be in the moment. And I look forward to the point where I can read these prayers months and months from now. Hopefully I'll still be in the mindset where I see them as beautiful. I don't know if you know like all those artists who are like, oh my gosh, I wrote this. It's the most beautiful thing within the first hour. And then two days later, I hate this. This is absolute crap. Why did I even spend time on that? (laughs) So I'm hoping I won't have that trajectory as artists. It's it's a trip. (laughs) Yeah, like I look forward to looking back on these prayers and trying to stay present, or finding new ways to stay present in those moments.
1: I mean, I don't want to like put you on the spot, but I would love to hear another poem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're in luck because the document I pulled up has two. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> this next poem is actually about South Minneapolis. It's called Communion. I shake ash, the color of autumn, from my fingers on a Franklin Avenue corner. Smoke floats past lips, familiar as music whistled through teeth. The men next to me greet each other, their handshakes a secret recipe. The girls across the street travel by skateboard, their movements settle as breath. Bossa Nova drifts from a duplex window. The bar below it grows graffiti like grapevines on its walls. More bodies join our corner, some blowing smoke of their own. Ashes fall like shooting stars from their mouths.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. I'm having a hard time finding language because, it, it, I mean, with both of these poems that you've read, they just open up worlds.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: And like, like truly. So just like, like, sitting here, like feeling things. <laughs>
0: well, that's what I hope my poetry is able to do. Open up world for people to get lost in or to find threads where they can have their own, start writing their own stories or find parallels in their own communities. A lot of people can relate to going past a city street. That's not experience. That's unique to my life. But uh, me writing about my specific feelings going on Franklin Avenue and the intersection of Franklin Avenue and like going past Cedar Riverside, um, how that feels in my body is going to feel different for how that feels in other people's bodies. But if I could somehow make you feel even for a moment what I'm feeling when I go down Franklin Avenue, then my job as a poet is I won't say it's done because. Is it ever really done? But I feel like the poem did what it was supposed to do, recognizing that we have respective differences with how we experience the world, but allowing you to feel what I'm feeling, not just hear what I'm hearing, not just see what I'm seeing, but the feeling of it. In some ways, I
1: mean, I mean, hyperfocus feels like a maybe the wrong term, but but like the the, the level of specificity that you bring, like like there's something that feels so. Calming, maybe like, like, uh, of the, like I'm, I'm thinking about like this as like a spiritual practice of, of what it is like to take something <laughs> and just focus on it. Like you, you mentioned, what is it like to name what is around us? And this idea of, of taking a moment and, and just exploring that moment, taking a hand, taking a street corner, there's something that feels kind of liberating in that.
0: Yeah, I definitely think there is room for liberation. I don't know if I ever, I ever saw that that way. When it comes to my poetry, just the specificity that comes with some of the language that I use, how that in itself can be liberating. I don't know if I paraphrased what you were saying correctly, but that's one of my
1: takeaways. <laughs> I, I mean, I love it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love it. And how can people find your work, Siobhan? My
0: twitter insta handles my facebook is all at siobhan w siobhan w shin sometimes i forget my own name <laughs> so <laughs> first name spelled c-h-a-v-o-n-n w then shin s-h-e-n and that's also my website ShivanWshin.com
1: thank you so much for joining me this has been lovely
0: thank you i'm glad that i can contribute to some loveliness in this world in this time
1: you can find out more about Siobhan by going to their website, siobhanwshen.com, and follow them across social media at Siobhan Shen. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is made possible through its active listeners. To find out how you can become an active listener and keep Queerology on the air, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear in the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all, bye!